0: Hey, it's good to be here at church today. I want to add my welcome to the one that, that Sandy's already given, and uh, and just hope that you know this is a time where you are encouraged, even confronted perhaps uh, in your faith and your understanding of Jesus and His place in your life. A, um, we might pray, and then we'll we'll get into finishing off this this little powerful letter that Paul wrote to to the churches in Galatia. Father God, uh, our prayer right now is that your loving grace, uh, your truth for us would would stand out, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts to the grace of your gospel in ways that um, confront us and transform us uh, from rebels with hearts that have mistrust towards you uh, to to children uh, whose hearts boast in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray this for your glory and our deep joy. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. Okay, um, honesty time, maybe, I don't know, whether you want to admit this or not, or whether you've taken time to think through this or not. But the Bible presents a picture that the reason for all of humanity's uh, dysfunctions, the reason for all the abuse uh, that we encounter in the world, uh, all this disorder, all this relational fracturing, uh, stem from our not being in a right relationship with our Creator. That's just what it presents. In Genesis, we are told that that, that God who was compelled by nothing, restrained or opposed by nothing, just creates. Creates this majestic cosmos, just effortlessly speaks it uh, into existence. And then the cosmos, in reply, speaks to God's creative power. Uh, we, We sing that, is that Christmas carol? Gloria. Uh, Gloria in excelsis Deo. That is what the universe is saying back to its creator. From the smallest atom to the most outrageously uh, spectacular cluster of galaxies. Um, I kind of looked this up this week to see what was the most mad thing out there in the universe. And it's literally a cluster of galaxies. Hercules, Corona, Borealis, Great Wall. Which takes 10 billion light years to travel across. It's just billions of galaxies all in one uh, relational, uh, gravitational, relational existence. So from the smallest atom to this crazy off-the-chain thing out there, they have one job, the psalmist tells us, and that is to day after day, uh, night after night, pour forth a story about the greatness of God. That is Psalm 19. From that tiniest atom to to this great wall, all declaring, all proclaiming the greatness of God. The universe has one governing rule, one functional principle. It's not the rule or principle of nature. It's not the rule or principle of, of, of gravitation, of matter, of, of attraction or light. Uh, it's worship of God, which it does mechanically. It's not thinking about it, it's just doing it. It's not starting each day saying to itself, uh, will we continue this song of praise? Will we just continue day after day to pour forth uh, and point to the greatness of God? It's just there saying, awe, oh, majesty, power. That's what it's doing. Now, into this, God places the most spectacular part of his creation, even, even crazier than that great wall, humanity. Now, if you're a disciple of modern culture, this will both delight you and disgust you at the same time, because we are constantly being told, yes, yes, that we are the most important thing in the universe, and your happiness is supreme, and while you're being sold that kind of a lie, you're also being reminded that the pursuit of your greatness, the pursuit of your happiness has caused great harm to the universe, and that humanity is more than the, the, the jewel of creation, but is a virus that's actually killing its host. That is a narrative that is in all of our movies now. Uh, that's what Thanos thinks. That's why he's out there trying to wipe out half of these people that are inhabiting this planet, killing it, being a bit of a virus. So we live in this conflict. However, if you take the Bible uh, at its word, this will fill you with, with awe and humility that pours out in, in relational worship that every day gets up and says, awe, majesty, power, and trust, and dependence, and love. That our lives would wake up each morning and boast in the love and the goodness of God revealed in creation, experienced in relationship. God said to humanity, this cosmos is off the chain in its spectacularness. There's some stuff out there that you will eventually find that will just blow your mind apart. However, you stand over and above it. In fact, I'm giving you the job of naming some of this creation because you are my image bearer. In you alone have I replicated some of my character. Everything else you find in the universe is about my power, but you are about my character. My heart, who I am personally. And you alone are designed to enjoy me, to know me, and proclaim me relationally, not, not mechanically. This is all yours. I am all yours. Go, delight in me. Go, delight in each other. Populate and fill the earth and then subdue it. You know, be masters of it. And that means cultivate it and nurture it. And fulfill it to its its potential that I've designed it for. Not become uh, like a virus to it. Not abuse it. Boast. Go and boast in our relationship. Make it the center of all that you do. Let it fill you with deep satisfaction. Let it fill you with joy. Now, just in case you are asking the question, why are we back in Genesis? Aren't we trying to finish off Galatians? You've rolled us back to Genesis again. Uh, yes, I have. Because the good news that we've been looking at all the way through Galatians at the centre of this book is seeking to get us back here, seeking to get us back to a place where we're in in right relationship with God, as where we, we were created, as we were made to be. Enjoying life to its fullest, boasting in the love and the goodness of God. That's your design spec. Outside of that you're broken. It speaks about the, 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 the rescuing of us and the setting us free from the relational dysfunctions and distrust that we now experience, that are, that are across all lines that we encounter, that our actions are from this original setting enslaved us to. Like it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The universe is yours, on you do whatever you want, love me, it's all yours. But rather than just being satisfied and delighting in all that God had for us, humbly trusting his word uh, for our joy, the Bible tells us briefly but painfully how humanity doubted God's word, distorted God's instructions and replaced his rule with rebellion. In Genesis 3, uh, we see our first parents move from trust and dependence to distrust and independence. Represented by the breaking of the one and only prohibition that God gave us. That tree, the tree of good and knowledge, that's off limits. That, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't reach out for it. Have nothing to do with it. That prohibition was not there to uh, create temptation, if you like. But rather, it's there for us to have the delight of obedience. You ever asked that question? Like, why did God put that tree there? Get rid of that tree. We're all good, right? Matt Chandler specul- speculates around this, as in, you know, theologically draws some conclusions about it. And I kind of, when I heard him talk about this, I went, "You have nailed this. That tree is there. Says so that we can delight in obedience. It added to our worship. It was not a point, and should never have been a point of temptation." but just another avenue for us to delight in God. The universe is yours apart from that tree which stands there to testify that you know you're not self-sufficient, but live in joyful obedience to a loving creator. The moment we reached out in autonomous self-rule, reducing God's word to something we mistrust, or disregard, or something that we could rule over, we irreversibly fractured the harmony of the created order and we brought the wrath of God into the relationship and the curse and the consequences of sin were unleashed on creation. And ever since that moment, humanity has been enslaved to that curse. And that condemnation of sin. And it's graphically depicted in there with relationships moving from openness and an authenticness. You know, they were naked and they knew no shame. They had nothing to hide. They were, they were just open. There was, there was nothing that couldn't be known. And we see them move to shame. They hid. Full of shame. Full of mistrust toward God and toward each other now out of loving, uh, trusting relationship with God due to this sin, humanity uh, down through the ages ha- because of sin has a history of mistrust towards God and mistrust uh, works itself out in two ways, two kind of two broad categories if you like. They're not, the, they're not exclusive categories but they're tidy categories and they're the categories that we have been using uh, through the book of Galatians. They, this, this works itself out in legalism And it works itself out in license or or relativism. The mistrust of legalism says that that, that we uh, merit God's love. Uh, Is that we work hard at being good Uh, by becoming great rule keepers. uh, We are saved by living a dutiful and good life. Legalism thinks that you can control uh, or or merit God's affections or emotions for you by your behaviour. The legalist mistrusts God's love and character and boasts in their efforts as being able to control God through their goodness. It seeks to put God in our debt. And when God fails to pay up to that debt, what happens? The mistrust just piles up. Oh, it wasn't good enough. Got to work harder. God, got... And on and on we go. Or the mistrust of license, relativism which says we know better than God. We know what's best for us. License mistrust God's goodness, God's commands. He sees his commands as death, not light. Sees obedience as work, not worship. God delights himself by, by withholding stuff from us. He's, he's withholding that tree from us, remember? He, he's, he delights himself from withholding stuff from us. His commands are not for our joy, but to rob us of joy. Life then is found in self-discovery, self-defying, self-defining, and it boasts in self. God, if he, should, if he exists, should just get with the program. And that's fine until something bigger than you turns up. And then we're angry at this irrelevant God for not making us powerful enough, wise enough, to deal with life, making us limited, making us needy. They seem like po- polar opposites, the legalist and the relativist. But essentially what drives them both is the same sinful condition of mistrust of God and sufficiency in self. Both leave us boasting in ourselves rather than in the love and the goodness of God for which we were created, in which we find our deepest joy. Both of, us, both of these things make us insecure, Are we ever good enough? Will we ever do enough? Make us competitive, conceited, envious. We've, We've rolled through all of this in this book. And the world burns in dysfunction. Relationships burn in dysfunction. Families burn in dysfunction while we boast in our own efforts, our own experiences, devoid of the character of God. God, though, is not satisfied with this. Sin and its cancerous effect on creation and on the image bearer will not will not have the last word, and God speaks a promise, a gospel. It's the first. It's the first announcing of the gospel there in Genesis three fifteen. A promise of grace, grace into this mess about the coming of Jesus, who will at just the right time rescue us from our destructive selfishness, a sinful mistrust of God's love and goodness. The whole Bible after Genesis three. It's the story of God's redemptive relationship with humanity through which we are constantly confronted with our mistrust of God. God says, hey, I'll give you this, do this. And we're like, I oh, don't know, I think we can do a little better than that. We're constantly confronted with our mistrust of God and God's has said his steadfast love to bring us back to right relationship with him. And then we see God once compelled, once again compelled by nothing, restrained or opposed by nothing, just sheer unmerited grace sends Jesus to be what we can't be, to be what we fail to be, to be the perfect image bearer whose life pours out in worship of God whose life delights in obedience to God's commands, whose life proclaims the character of God. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus' whole life boasts, made much of the goodness and the love of God. And then Jesus takes this perfect life, this perfect boast, and offers it as a substitute our lives of mistrust, of manipulating legalism and indifferent relativism at the cross. There Jesus, the promise of God, the promise of grace, God in the flesh bears the the outcome, the wages of this curse that has been unleashed on humanity. The curse of sin, the wrath of God. And uh, all rest on Jesus. All of our mistrust, all that people boasted in in themselves so that we might, might, through faith in what Jesus has done for us on that cross, become justified. That is, put back into a relationship that resembles what we had at creation. We're back in right relationship with God, like, like we've never broken His commands, like we never sinned. We're justified back with God. No shame, no fear of death, no mistrust in God, just sheer delight in Him for what He has done for us. This is the gospel, that God, in His grace, saves us by faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel strips us of any boast that we have of any claim to manipulate and control God of any of any boast that we might have to to say this is how we will gain salvation or to say this is how we don't need salvation and it tells us that we need grace in our lives to live well again the gospel points out our need and all through Galatians we have been seeing that the gospel has left us with one primary job once we become christians and that primary job is not to go and do good works that primary job is is not to go and and live in some in some carefree uh, life that, that makes much of grace because we can just do whatever we like they are just legalism and relativism trying to come back and rob the cross of its power in fact, Galatians has been all about uh, these two deep scripts of the human heart uh, trying to distort the gospel, trying to empty it of its power, of its one central boast. And its one central boast of the gospel is the cross. Our one job as a Christian is to boast into cross, to make much of Jesus. And now at the end of this letter, Paul uh, grabs the pen there off his scribe, uh, who, who he's dictating to, and he, and, he, and, he kind of, and he writes in his own hand now. He wants to push home that real Christianity uh, is, 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 not, is a matter of inward change, not external rules, not external behaviour, modifications or ritual practice. And the cross of Jesus is the only means by which this change takes place, the only means by which God brings us back to him. It stands against all other schemes, all other ideas of self-salvation. It strips us of our ability to boast in ourselves and demands that our lives be humbly realigned to God through faith. Through faith in what? Through faith in Christ, through faith in what he has done on the cross. Where Jesus took upon himself all our boasting that flowed out of hearts of mistrust towards God where we try in our lives to put God in our debt, where we try to make God conform to our plan, overlook sweep past our rebellion, our sin against our loving creator that pushes us out of relationship with him. That means we can't be in relationship with him. The cross is where God puts to death that old script, where God puts to death that old identity of needing to boast in self that drives us to gain value and worth and dignity out of our achievements, out of our experiences of life. And, and, and because we worship that, we drive so hard, it comes at the expense of, of everyone around us, of everything around us. Like even if loved ones get in the way of what we think makes much of us, we will wound them to get to it. But through faith we are recreated we have made new we have a new heart that has experienced the goodness and the love of God towards us that forgives and rescues sinners here is what's so wonderful about the cross you could almost say it by heart by now it means that you are far more wicked than you would ever dare admit however You are far more loved than you ever dare dream or imagine. You see, at the cross, God's grace moves toward the sinner and says, I know every detail, every harsh word, every broken promise, every insecurity that that, that made you do uh, abusive things toward other people. Even your mistrust of me, I know of that too. However, I will exchange the honor and the dignity And the glory of my son with your story, with your shame, with your mistrust. So that you can begin a new story that is not based in that old insecurity, that old insecure boast. But but a story that is based in the profound power of the cross. The gospel, that God in his grace saves us through faith in Jesus, leads us to boast about The cross, its work and its claim on our lives. And Paul writes now in capital letters, in his own hand, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me. The world has no power over me anymore. It can't control me anymore. I don't get my value out of it. I don't get my meaning out of it there anymore an eye to the world. It's put a new boast in our heart. And this morning, set before us, is this simple meal of bread and wine or juice that Jesus instructed us to maintain so that we would never move far from what is the centre of our faith, so that we would never think about boasting in something else. The cross on which the prince of glory died, gave his body and his blood on our behalf. He was crushed. His body was crushed, so that ours would not be. He was crushed by the curse of sin, so that we would not be. He experienced the sting of death, so that we would not. This table reminds us that we have one job that informs and shapes all the theatres of our lives. It informs and shapes and, 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 and casts its shadow over our marriages, over our vocations, over our hobbies, our recreations. We are to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what have we found? That just sets us free, doesn't it? Like once we realize in all our inadequacies, in all our greatness, God still moved towards us and humbled us and healed us and said, you are mine... That just frees you up to not need to get your relevance from any of those things, does it not? Like you are loved, we've said it, you are justified by the judge and you are loved by the Father and that just sets you free. No longer controlled by the vain things of this world, we boast in the goodness and the love of God, most spectacularly demonstrated at the cross. We no longer live in fearful mistrust that drives legalism, nor are we enslaved uh, to, to worship of achievement or experience that drives license. We're a new creation in Christ, boasting in Christ and experiencing the deep power, the deep heart power of that transformation that that brings. We no longer mistrust God, but we delight in His goodness and His love. Our lives are once again proclaiming relationally, once again pouring forth, once again we are the image bearer of God, proclaiming the goodness of God in our lives. And when our boast is in in God and not in ourselves, the world stops burning, marriages stop burning and they begin to flourish and they begin to know the life that Christ came to give us and nothing speaks more about that relationship that we have with God than a meal. Last night uh, we are seeking to build relationship at this church and we gather with our people around a meal because gathering around a meal says we're accepted, that that we're in right relationship and this meal represents that, that you are accepted by God through what he did on the cross and so we come and remember. We take the bread it represents the body of Christ. We take the the juice or the wine. It represents the blood of Christ, and we take these things to remember. We take these things to say, "Here is our boast. Here is what our hearts make much of. This is where life is now." So this morning, as we as we close uh, out our our time together, I want you just to sit, think over that verse, mate. I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified and I to the world. And as you kind of prayerfully consider that, come forward and just take a bit of the bread, just bust it up and take a bit and give thanks um, for the body of Christ and take a little cup. And normally we would eat eat the bread in our own time and then together we would drink uh, the, the, the wine, the juice to symbolize the unity. But you're going to just eat the bread and drink the wine in your own time. Our band's going to come up and we're just going to sing our last song, kind of like a prayer, uh, as we do communion. And uh, Sandy will close us out. I'll just pray. Loving God, we just want to thank you um, just for the the wonderful story that's floated through this book of Galatians. of your gospel of grace that moves toward sinners and rebels and those that would shake their fist at you, those that would live in cold indifference to you, those that would try and uh, outmaneuver you, outsmart you, belittle you, those who really don't deserve your love. And yet what we read is that you move towards us in grace, completely unmerited. And that your spirit illuminates that truth in our hearts and, and, and makes us new creatures. Brings a new relational script to our lives where we, where we no longer need these old supports, but our boast is in you. We, we've been reconciled to you and we give you thanks for that this morning. May our hearts with glad joy uh, just once again, just deep thanks for Jesus who makes faith possible. He's the object of our faith. Uh, The work of the cross brings us back to you. We're, We're deeply thankful for that. Amen.